Hi, this is Li Chen Ren, Director of Modern Alpha Wisdom Tree ETFs. Welcome to China of Tomorrow podcast series, where we navigate China, India, Japan, and the broad emerging markets with members of Wisdom Tree and other industry leaders. Hi, today is January 30th, 2024. If your New Year's resolution is already messed up, uh, fortunately, February 9th is the Chinese New Year, so a second chance. Uh, China will be uh, in a very slow-moving uh, world uh, in the next uh, two or three weeks, as many Chinese will uh, go back to their original ancestor home for a very long holiday. Uh, today, we have Professor Dali Yang from University of Chicago to talk about a book he recently uh, is publishing, uh, How the COVID Outbreak Started and What Happened in December and Early January 2020. Um, I think uh, how you know, the COVID outbreak and how it's managed is very interesting in China. I myself learned a great deal about China and typical Chinese people in the last three years. Um, I think uh, if I, I've learned so much, and maybe one day I should also write a book. Uh, first, uh, very quick on uh, economic situation in China. And for my listeners who followed me on Twitter and uh, who've Who've been, you know, uh, listening to our episodes. Um, I I know that in the last uh, week uh, there has been a lot of positive uh, policies coming out of China, PBOC, CSRC. Um, essentially, every major uh, government is body is coming out with some policy. But I'm sticking with my baseline as I outlined in previous episodes and in my blogs as well. Uh, China's government will be doing something. If things got really, really bad, but also do not count uh, on it to use stimulus as a growth engine. Um, maybe in the future we'll, you know, explain uh, in more fine details. Uh, but essentially, I think uh, uh, generally, I, I, I have been sticking with this. I know sometimes it's hard because you know we get many, many questions on, on China, and some people get uh, really positive. And I always said, you know. Do not be too positive, but also do not be too negative. Uh, now let's talk with Professor Yang, um, who I have known for many years and who also know me for many years. So he will tolerate my bluntness. Uh, Professor Yang, why do you write this book and what challenges you got when writing this book? Uh, well, uh, clearly uh, the COVID-19, the pandemic is uh, the defining event for an entire generation, in fact, for multiple generations over the last few years. Uh, so before uh, COVID, uh, I was actually working on uh, issues related to Chinese governance, uh, actually also in public health issues as well. So uh, I also happened to be uh, in Beijing uh, during the SARS uh, outbreak uh, in uh, 2003. So when the Information began to start, uh, to actually come out of Wuhan uh, in, at the end of 20, uh, 2019 and early 2020. So I immediately became hooked. Uh, so pretty soon I decided I needed to write something. And of course, uh, one thing led to another. And eventually I decided I really, really should focus on uh, explaining what happened to the world, really. Um, so that's really has become my, uh, my passion and also my mission for the last few years. 
Great. What What's the main uh you know things that you covered like, and what surprised you when you were researching it? Well, uh, this is actually very much about how uh, information about the outbreak uh, was gathered, was uh, processed, and of course, eventually in the process, how decision makers made their decisions to respond to the outbreak in Wuhan. And of course, to the extent that the uh, the pandemic started in Wuhan, um, so that's extraordinarily important. So for me, it's really, uh, in fact, I'll, uh, in contrast to many people who think, oh, China was covering up and not doing anything. In fact, what I find is that the health authorities and the Chinese leadership knew much more than generally is known uh, already at the end of 2019. And they also responded very aggressively at that point internally. And that's fairly typical about public health issues in China. So they would keep a calm demeanor on the surface, but at the same time work very aggressively. And here is actually what really is uh, surprising to many people is the fact that the Chinese leadership actually thought that they had dealt with the outbreak by around January 10th or so. Of course, we all know that's not the case. And of course, uh, uh, in that sense, actually, uh, this is really a book about how did all those smart people working very hard in this process mess up? So that's interesting. Why do you think that in early January they will draw that conclusion? Well, the, uh, clearly is a lot is, uh, the devil truly is in the details in this case because, uh, what I examine is the multiple information channels that could have, could have alerted, uh, uh, authorities and the house leadership in particular to the spreading of the virus. In fact, what I, uh, discuss and, uh, really describe in great detail is how every important channel actually got choked up. In, in many ways, actually, the system, the health emergency response system in China seized up in Wuhan. So in the end, it really actually, uh, it required efforts outside of Wuhan, in Shenzhen, in Guangdong, in Thailand, in, and, and in the WHO, uh, that really helped to uh, change the mind of the people in China, stimulate them to think actually the virus was spreading. Of course, in hindsight, it's hard to miss it, right, if you are experts. But what's remarkable is that the leading epidemiologists and others truly did miss it uh, for uh, for really weeks. Uh, and, of course, it was very, very precious time that was lost. That's very interesting because um, I think if I were to write a book, I I will focus on the responses from the economics point of view because that's an area where um, I am much a little bit more familiar. And you, when you say that, because I think it, it, it again, you know, makes us think about this question in, is in terms of how experts uh, plays a role in China's decision making process. Um, because during the SARS, we have this very um, brave. Uh, 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 doctor, Doctor Jiang Yanyong, who uh, recently, pa- you know, who passed away, but he was uh, someone who was very um, open and uh, willing to really sacrifice 
I wouldn't say sacrifice, but risk his career in putting his own career. And he did put his own career after SARS. He, you know, he kind of, uh, you know, didn't uh, get the, uh, I think, the credit he he deserves. Uh, but during this pandemic, COVID pandemic, we didn't really see someone uh, like him in terms of expert to sound the alarm. Is that a fair characterization? Well, I'm glad you drew uh, attention to Dr. Jiang during the SARS uh, uh, crisis. Of course, by the time Dr. Jiang uh, really began to reveal that there were many more cases in Beijing in the hospitals, uh, it's already uh, actually months uh, since the outbreak had started in 2003. Uh, so in many ways, there are parallels, uh, but of course, the science has advanced Digital communications have advanced since 2003. So the, of course, it just happened that this virus, uh, the SARS-2, is also much more contagious uh, than SARS-1. Uh, so in many ways, experts play important roles. Uh, and in fact, I do uh, dig into a lot of the information. For example, typically the official Chinese uh, um, uh, narrative is that uh, it's Dr. Zhang Jixian and one particular provincial hospital that was the first to report, uh, submit cases. In fact, what I report is that there were multiple doctors who were submitting cases to the health emergency system, to the CDCs uh, at the local, uh, local level and so on at the end of 2019. There were also multiple uh, laboratories that sequenced the virus and really realized that it was a novel coronavirus that was about 80% similar to the SARS-1 coronavirus. So they played a big role. The clinicians played a big role too. Uh, It's actually clinicians who saw that patients could not be cured with antibiotics who began to prescribe, for example, uh, lab tests uh, who also saw that the symptoms were very much like SARS-1. So therefore, they began to sound the alarm internally in the hospitals, and also uh, the information about the genomic sequences was submitted to the local CDCs through the laboratories as well. So by the end of uh, December 2019, actually, the health authorities had quite a bit of information uh, but there is also divide among the experts in terms of the public health people who don't who don't have the right to actually directly treat patients, and therefore they are somewhat removed, and they tended to think about uh, outbreak in different terms from the clinicians. Uh, so experts did play a big role, and we do also know that it's Dr. Effen uh, at the Wuhan Central Hospital who shared actually the lab results about a particular patient uh, online with colleagues. And one of those colleagues in Wuhan Central Hospital happens to be Dr. Li Wenliang, who in turn uh, turn shared that actually some sort of uh, information with his uh, friends and classmates, former classmates in particular. And it's in this process, actually, uh, Dr. Gao Fu, uh, uh, George Gao, the former the director general then of the China CDC in Beijing, who learned about the outbreak in Wuhan. So in other words, the Wuhan authorities did not report to the center, uh, let alone allow the information from the disease reporting system to go to the China CDC. So it's actually Dr. Gao who learned about it online 
in the evening of December 30th. So he clearly played a very important role at this moment, uh, being the scout rather than being the general in command of the situation. That's very interesting. So in early December, I think, uh, as you mentioned, uh, many clinicians and doctors, and Dr. Li Wenliang himself died from this disease. Um, and, uh, you know, so these information were able to channel you know, to the uh, to the central government, uh, and the other side where the regularly set up a channel of communication did not, uh, you know, reach the information to the top. Now, for the second part, I'm still really interested to know why in uh, early January then, um, when these many technicians they 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 are seeing things on the ground, why the the top expert will say this virus is under control. Like, mm-hmm. what's the what's the extra piece of information that makes the government realize that? Well, that's uh, that's certainly a great question, and also I really spend a lot of time in the book discussing what actually happened in the first few weeks of uh, this, uh, of January 2020. So, to uh, uh, to make the long story short, on December 31st. Uh, 2019, the National Health Commission, the, essentially the Ministry of Health, uh, sent SWAT teams together with the China CDC. Uh, so they were on the ground, and in the evening of December uh, 20, uh, 31st, actually, they decided, um, they recommended and then uh, essentially decided to launch a package action program to deal with the outbreak. Uh, they had the uh, approval for example, from the local authorities, from the provincial leadership to shut the Huanan seafood market where they believe the, uh, the initial cases had come from, for example. So it's an action program uh, by, for example, bringing all patients uh, with connections to the market to the Jianyintan Hospital, an infectious disease hospital. And they gathered experts uh, uh, to treat those patients and also, um, of course, disinfections and so on in the market. So it's based on these actions uh, and, of course, various other additional measures uh, that the suddenly uh, for several, for at least the two weeks, actually, they began, they no longer was actually getting reporting of cases. Now, here is a big uh, uh, but also a very small detail, but it's also a very important detail. Because in the early days, they decided, I mean, the experts, uh, the public health system def- defined a particular case as being connected with the Huanan market. Once they shut down the market, there were very few cases that were directly connected to the market. So clinicians were seeing more cases with similar symptoms, but the system stopped getting cases that had connections with the market. So there was a big disconnect and the system was really shut up in such a way and the experts were silenced in the process. There were hospitals that were trying to say, oh, we got those cases that had similar, the same symptoms, we need to act on it. But the system, however, basically ignored them. Of course, the local leaders in particular in Hubei province and Wuhan city, uh, they were all in political meetings at around that time as well. It just happened. So as a result, actually, this is why I say the system ceased off, the health emergency response system. 
they began to miss a lot of the new cases that were infected but had no connections to the Huanan market directly. That actually reminds me a lot about something that happened in the U.S. Um, I remember in early, you know, March, U.S. were only testing the cases that were considered imported, you know, from China or from other bits. And I remember so clearly, I was in the studio with my boss, uh, you know, Jeremy Schwartz and uh, producer, and I was telling them very stressed that. China actually went through the similar thing and turns out to be a wrong decision. That you cannot just define the cases that's related to the imported cases. And, and I remember CDC here in the US were also only testing people who are considered to be, you know, can be traced back to the cases that they consider imported in the US. Well, at the same time, now we looking back, that the virus is already uh, in U.S. circulating uh, much more widely than those uh, so-called connected cases. Um, I think at that time, some private joke within my friends was that um, China's CDC people, that's what I heard, I, I'm not an a expert, were actually trained by the U.S. CDC people, and they actually followed the exact the same protocol because this protocol has worked during SARS, but totally didn't work because it's just so much more contagious than than, than the earlier SARS one. I don't know. Well, is this a good? <laughs> <laughs> well, clearly, the, there is a lot of lessons for the public health system and especially for the, uh, the uh, centers of disease uh, control and prevention. And uh, yeah, in many ways, actually, we can continue to discuss uh, for quite a bit of time on, on those kind of issues. But in the end, is really uh, so. When we look back, the situation was that in hindsight, so much of what went wrong was so obvious, right? So who was in charge? Because this was no longer 2003 when testing capacity. Uh, wasn't there, uh, or certainly, um, actually the experts, the virologists in particular, did not uh, uh, find out about the virus for for actually quite a bit of time, for months. But in 2019, that's entirely an uh, entirely different game. The, uh, the genomic sequencing technology is very widely available in China through both public and private laboratories. And therefore, they could have easily tested. And the, the challenge, therefore, is that there were, at each step, decisions that were made. Uh, but of course, in the U.S. CDC case, we do know that they also had some problems with the testing case as well. Uh, so those are all very serious issues that should be looked at. If we want to do better, if humanity wants to do better uh, when the next pandemic comes and so on. The, so under the U.S. CDC, I, at least when I was looking at at that time, uh, CDC can decide who can be tested. And uh, it seems like there are not much resistance under the U.S. system. So in terms of in China, like who sets the policy on who can be tested? Like ultimately, who made that call? Well, clearly is uh, is the uh, the National Health Commission that could have made that call, 
And of course, the experts at the China CDC could have made the request uh, also. And of course, uh, um, the testing case, well, we are talking about, this is Wuhan, right? China's highest security uh, lab, uh, the Wuhan Institute of Virology is right based there. And of course, the Chinese CDC system, including the, the nationals of the China CDC in Beijing and also the Hubei Provincial uh, CDC, they all had testing capacities, actually. At that point, for example, uh, the China CDC was expanding a lot of effort testing environmental samples uh, that had been uh, picked up from the uh, Huanan market. So the issue was not whether there was the capacity. China had the capabilities of doing so. The issue was one of scientific and public health leadership. So in some way, in the future, I think government, both the U.S. government and the Chinese government, need to give ordinary people and institutions more power to testing, right? I, I think even right now, uh, if there's a new again, if there's a new virus that uh, emerges, um, can private institutes uh, do their own testing, right? I think they should be able to, instead of just CDC deciding or just some government institution who are usually slow uh, in responding to decide. I don't know whether, what, like if there's a new virus that comes again, do you think that the the testing that, you know, um, monopoly is, is going to change? Well, this is a great question about regulation. Of course, this regulation uh, in regard to health, of course, in the financial sector, as you know, regulation is such an important uh, uh, dimension uh, of the entire industry. So, in the, uh, so when we look at the situation, it's not just about testing, uh, because on January 3rd, 2020, the National Health Commission uh, actually issued a gag order, essentially banning most laboratories from engaging in testing of any samples from Wuhan uh, of, of respiratory diseases at that point. Um, but it's also not just testing, it's the ability just for experts for laboratories, for example, to share information publicly and for doctors to be able to speak up. Instead, they were all, so there was really for many days, essentially experts were shut up and those people, for example, there were hospital presidents and doctors who really advocated for taking more decisive action, who pointed out, in fact, there was one hospital, the Zhongnan Hospital, where they actually tested patients using the SARS kit uh, from 2003. And those cases were positive, actually, uh, remarkably. So, and they also did additional testing uh, using sequencing. So they had the information. They shared the information with the authorities, but they were ignored uh, uh, at that point, actually. So therefore, a lot of the issue, therefore, is not simply about testing. It's about the will of the public health system and also the overall political system to, uh, to trust the people that this was a dangerous virus that's circulating, but at the same time, also to, to be honest about what they were doing. Uh, yeah, so I think uh, um, because, you know, China definitely 
missed a, a, a slight early window. Uh, and also U.S., I think uh, CDC's monopoly on testing also made, uh, you know, time, uh, lost uh, some time in responding. And, but from someone who, like me who worked from the private business, I just felt like if there's another virus, unless there are private, uh, institutions which can have freedom to speak up and, and, uh, able to test, then this thing is, is, could potentially repeat because if you work within the system, or like in the US CDC system or you, um, in China's system, you just have this, you know, calculation of risk of your career, right? Unless someone is really willing to sacrifice their career to speak out. So it's much better to have a, have a system that is, uh, uh, has its own power. Um, so what is, uh, as a, you know, someone who, uh, in financial market industry, how is the monetary, uh, incentives played in this whole thing? Except, except, you know, the thing you, we talk about people who, you know, who, who may lose their jobs. So that's something which constraining mm-hmm. people. But is there any kind of monetary incentives or for during these two, two months, it's not a big factor? Well, clearly incentives matter, and you speak uh, 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 like a uh, Chicago-trained uh, <laughs> economist. Um, I think actually what's remarkable looking back at this time is after SARS 2003, the Chinese government and the China CDC established a national disease reporting system that was supposed to issue alerts uh, to alert the system uh, of new cases, uh, for example, uh, including pneumonia of uncertain etiology, in other words, of unknown cause, and so on. And what's also remarkable is local authorities don't like to report that there are outbreaks on their territories because it may hurt them economically. And that's the case in Wuhan because it just happens to be at the end of the year uh, and if they reported that there is a significant outbreak in Wuhan uh, voluntarily, that could mess up uh, with their evaluations on, for example, uh, Wuhan uh, is actually a national healthy city. But that badge of honor, uh, it took Wuhan 15 years to gain it. We don't want to lose it. And likewise, we look at hospitals, for example. There were hospitals, there were major hospitals in Wuhan that they were treating their own doctors for SARS-2, uh, for COVID, essentially at that point, uh, in by, for example, early uh, January. But one of those doctors, for example, who was infected, was contacted by, by experts from Beijing, and he said, no, I'm not infected. Why? Because he didn't want to, uh, uh, because clearly he was under pressure from his own hospital. Because hospitals could be penalized for having doctors, for having ear hospital infections happen to them. So they don't like to let others know that they have their own staff being infected. So all of those were happening, really, at the municipal level, at the provincial level, at the hospital level, and so on. So after writing this book, what are the top three things that uh, you learn about you know, the Chinese government and uh, China? Uh, and also, do you feel there are things that are in put in place or 
uh, to to mitigate some of the problems, or you feel that uh, this still uh, quite uh, kind of uh, people are forgetting about it? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, clearly, number one is was there a chance, right, for China for Wuhan to stop the uh, uh, the outbreak in uh, early? And that required really a perfect the disease reporting system to work, uh, requiring decisive leadership and so on. Uh, And of course, people ask me, oh, should Wuhan have been under lockdown? But of course, if you share, you allow people to know that there was a coronavirus circulating, uh, you trust them, then they would have behaved very differently like in Beijing in 2003. it's, I don't feel like it's necessary to have a very early lockdown, but at the same time, it was necessary to trust the people. So public trust is markedly important. That means sharing information. Whether it's in 1918 or in 2019 and 2020, it's very important for authorities to trust their own people. The other issue is just when in the system in China, just when... Uh, uh, when uh, when the authorities set up a system, doesn't mean the system will, will work. For example, the disease, disease reporting system was set up in the 2000s, but it was put into disuse. It wasn't even used for reporting the early cases. Hospitals were not allowed, and the, the local health com- administrations, essentially health commissions. In fact, in one case, a hospital even submitted cases uh, um, uh, uh, and the cases were, mistru- uh, were eliminated, removed by the provincial authorities, apparently. Uh, so, so that's the kind of situation. So therefore, it's very important to have a system to make sure that there are safeguards to allow the system to work, not to penalize people for reporting. And finally, the, the issue is leadership doesn't come naturally. There is the need for leadership. That means also sometimes you need the kind of leadership to mind the store. For example, who was uh, in the, for example, in the China CDC, they actually, uh, in one of the institutes, they have the chief epidemiologist. What's interesting is in China in January 2020, early on, actually that chief epidemiologist had retired officially in 2019. So he wasn't even full-time on the job, in a way. So one could go on, amplify the, essentially, someone needs to mind the store. And it's not just about China, just not just about Wuhan, because diseases don't respect borders. Yeah. So final question, uh, since we all live in the U.S., and I would say the early response in the U.S. was, not a either, uh, you know, uh, the U.S. made some of the exact same mistakes China made. And in early March, actually, many people like me, in, you know, who, who, who were looking what's happening in January, um, uh, were seeing the same, you know, kind of a mistaken steps uh, that the U.S. made. And in the U.S., you know, it, you would think there's a free press and, you know, there is a system. So, like, if you using this, uh, this final question, uh, it, with your lenses of what happens in, in China and looking at the U.S., uh, you know, response, like, what, what, what kind of things, you know, U.S., uh, could, could, could have, you know, done a little bit, uh, better? 
Well, uh, yeah, that's a great question. Uh, well, number one is actually very much again about a question about China because China took pride in its ability to control the SARS virus in 2003. It built up the system. It had the capabilities. So in other words, it had the historical experience, the memories of SARS, and the pride that it could do it. It did eventually control. The problem is to what extent the virus may have spread, right? So sort of, in the U.S. case, well, we are not, of course, there are discussions to what extent could coronaviruses emerge uh, uh, in the U.S. But here we have a situation where in China, in 17 years, there are two novel coronaviruses that emerged. So that matters in a way. Uh, and in the U.S., clearly also there are lessons to be learned about how to strengthen pandemic preparedness uh, as well. And there are a lot of discussions about this. Uh, actually, it's not just in the U.S., in China, but also in the WHO about the international health regulations as well. And there is just a lot that countries could do uh, in the age of quick travel. But at the same time, scientists have developed greater capacities for testing uh, and so on. But it does also uh, remind us that actually sort of temporarily, certainly, there could be possibilities about closing borders and so on. But those are very controversial issues at the time, especially when you have economies so integrated and they are very disruptive, uh, actually. But looking back, however, uh, so this is where there needs to, to be developed protocols. And I think actually the biggest lesson, therefore, is for all governments to be much more aggressive if there are outbreaks, actually. And there may need to be some sort of uh, uh, fund for helping with that kind of uh, initial aggressive responses, but at the same time making sure that there are safeguards against infringements of rights or certainly of certain protections as well. Thank you so much. I, I, I also I don't know whether this is valid, but I feel that because China and U.S. successfully did uh, the SARS-1 containment, that somehow crowded some of the judgment. Because I remember in February, uh, in January here in the U.S., I was in China actually end of December and came back on January 3rd. Um, and I, at, at that time when Wuhan locked down, and I've been keeping telling friends close to me that this virus is more uh, contagious and I believe it will come to the U.S., um, it, it, you know, much more than what, you know, the CDC is saying. Uh, but at that time, many people here really do not see it as a global virus. They see it as a, like a China virus or Asian virus. And I think that is partly because all the governments were so successful containing like SARS-1 um, and you know, becomes people feel that hey, you know, SARS one, SARS two, not that different. But it turns out this two was so different in terms of being. Well, that's uh, uh, let me say actually SARS one was probably more contagious than people really? uh, realize, and that's part of the problem in learning about the uh, the uh, the past, and that lesson wasn't being conveyed. So even within the scientific community, the general impression was SARS-1 was much less contagious, uh, actually. So sort of, but the, you're absolutely right. Cognitive uh, 
suicide factors played a big role. And in fact, I have a dedicated chapter uh, in the book uh, on the uh, what I call the epidemiological tunnel vision by the China CDC leadership, for example. But it, of course, the, some of the uh, some of the arguments is not just about the China CDC leadership. Uh, you're absolutely right uh, that very often actually we learn the wrong lessons from the past. Definitely. I mean, before we talk, I always thought the SARS one is is less contagious, but again, that's you know in the media that ordinary people consume, you get you know less uh, direct uh, information. This is so interesting, and thank you so much. Uh, and I recommend people read uh, Professor Young's book. Uh, even you may disagree, I think it's a great uh, uh, window to see how decisions are made in China and. For, for people who know about China's economic policy right now, um, there's some, some similarities, I will say, uh, in terms of, you know, experts and some of the experts not, not willing to, you know, speak up in terms of, uh, uh, economic. It's a much slower moving process than, than the virus, but still very, I've learned this, uh, a lot by observing the virus, both in the U.S., uh, uh, how people deal with uh, COVID in China and in the U.S. Thank you. You're most welcome.